Hello and welcome back to another episode of the 100k Freelancer Club podcast. Today I'm talking to a very special and exciting guest. She charges probably the highest uh, the highest rate per hour as a freelancer uh, I've ever seen and she does it successfully as well. She's dominated Upwork earning over a quarter of a million dollars on there. She's a memoir ghostwriter, Amazon KDP expert and author of The Six Figure Freelance Writer. But before I dive into this podcast, remember, if you're an aspiring freelancer or entrepreneur uh, and you like this podcast, hit the subscribe button, uh, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you may be, uh, it really helps us out. And also head over to 100kfreelancerclub.com to sign up for our free courses and content around freelancing and entrepreneurship. But without any more promo, let's jump straight into the podcast. Joining me on the podcast today is Amy Suto, uh, who is a freelance memoir ghostwriter and Amazon KDP publishing expert, along with other things which I'll jump into later in this podcast. Um, but I have been watching you on Instagram and your latest adventures and your YouTube channel. Uh, and I don't know if you're back yet, but um, are you currently in Peru for this uh, podcast recording? Uh, I actually just got back. Uh, I'm here visiting some some family in SoCal, but I was in Peru for a whole month and it was incredible. Yeah, I mean, that looked really awesome. And that's got to be one of the best bits about freelancing, right? Where you just like one day just thought, you know what, bucket list, Machu Picchu, Peru, I'm going. Is that kind of the thought process that got you there? Yeah, I think this year I Cusco, Peru and Machu Picchu was not even on my radar. I wasn't even thinking about it. And then when we kind of uh, my partner, Kyle and I, who I travel with, when we were getting closer, like, OK, what are we going to do? Because we were in Athens this summer. Uh, we were in Valencia, Spain. And we're like, all right, well, we could go like we, there was a few other places on our bucket list. We definitely want to go to like northern Europe. Um, but when we saw um Cusco, Peru, we started thinking about doing the four-day trek to Machu Picchu on the Inca Trail. That was something that I had wanted to do. And I was like, okay, well, why not just do it right now? And so as a freelancer, it's really nice to be able to just be like, oh, this wasn't even on my radar this year. And then booking Cusco literally like a month and a half before we went and then ending up on the Inca Trail for four days, which was just such an incredible experience. It's only something that you can do if you're a freelancer and you don't have to beg a boss for time off or have to plan so far out in advance. So it's the perks of freelancing are, are definitely uh, very apparent when you're a traveler and somebody who just like wants to go, you know, ride ATVs in the Sacred Valley and go and and, and be in these really beautiful places that you weren't even thinking of a, a month before. Yeah, I mean, you're getting me hyped up. I'm gonna have to get on Skyscanner after this, uh, <laughs> after this recorded. I, I, I love it. And I love your enthusiasm as well. Um, did you have to be like, for the four day trail was did it require like a lot of physical fitness? Or do you think it's quite, you know, most people could do that? Or would you recommend kind of getting in shape before you attempt that? Definitely recommend getting in shape um, as kind of part of my journey of, of like somebody who is doing a lot of more of like 
intense hikes and and things lately. Um, I was actually diagnosed with an autoimmune disease a few few years ago, and so up until that point, I had been running half marathons and I was really fit and really in shape. And then, as of like two and a half years ago, I was falling down stairs and like I, my joints were swelling and I was having all of these problems. And luckily, as a freelancer, I was able to spend a lot of time like on my healing journey and getting in shape and researching all of these different kind of holistic kind of complements to my treatment. And doing the, the Inca Trail was kind of this huge accomplishment because, especially on day two, it is five hours straight up a mountain <laughs> with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Incan stairs. And um, it was pretty intense. And I almost thought that I wasn't going to make it up the, the second day. But luckily, I was surrounded by a lot of good friends and, and people who were just really amazing and cheering me on and helping me get to the top of that mountain and to the top of Dead Woman's Pass, which is an infamous part of the Inca Trail that was very challenging. And so I was able to kind of like cross off a bucket list item that not only was really cool personally, but also on my health journey, I was like, yes, this is like, this is such a huge accomplishment, especially where I was from where I've come the last few years of not being able to do day hikes to suddenly being in the middle of a four day hike in the middle of the Peru wilderness, uh, hiking straight up a mountain for five hours. <laughs> and so it was a really cool kind of, um, and kind of like bookend to a journey of what I've been doing so far. Um, of trying to figure out how to uh, how to find healing, how to find balance in my life, how to find kind of a better work life balance with freelancing and um, and my personal projects, and also just you know living life as a human and a traveler. Yeah, well, that is an awesome achievement. Congrats, congrats on that. And is it that part that you called? Is it called Dead Woman's Pass because a woman died there, or is it just? Uh, <laughs> No. So Dead Woman's Pass is one of the highest points of elevation on the Inca Trail. It's one of the, the summits, but it is called that because when you look from above, it looks like a dead woman lying on the ground from the vantage point of the summit. So uh, ah, okay. nobody has died that I know, but one of the most dangerous parts of the Inca Trail is Huana Pichu, which is by Machu Picchu and that really steep, tall mountain that a lot of people hike uh, that uh, people have died there. Um, but that was, that's the peak that I skipped because when we got to Machu Picchu, I'm like, I'm done. I'm good. I, I made it here. We did the Inca trail. Uh, I don't need to go do another dangerous, uh, section of this hike. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Always looking out for yourself. It's good. That's good. And when, so first of all, I'm sorry to hear about, um, you know, your diagnosis uh, of the autoimmune disease. Um, you know, it sounds like you're coping like really well you're on a good journey and i i think for most people when they when they get bad news like this it can do one of two things it even set them uh set them off into a downward spiral of despair and feeling sorry for themselves or it can have the complete opposite effect where they have that like really get up and go they see maybe it even gives them you know they see more value in their life now that they've been given you know this this shock um, how did that affect you initially, especially being a freelancer? Because, you know, if you if you work for like a nice big company like Google, for example, you know that you're going to have that protection, that help from the company financial, like financially when you are sick. Um, but whereas in the freelance world, in the business world, there isn't such luxury. luxury. So did that kind of scare you? Uh, when you got that news in that regard or or was it sort of you know just a massive I have to do this confidence boost let's go 
Uh, yeah, it was it was terrifying <laughs> because as everyone who's a freelancer knows, you are responsible for your own health insurance, your own health insurance costs, and the autoimmune condition I have, rheumatoid arthritis, is like notoriously one of the most expensive. And when I got that news, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. Like, I don't know how I'm going to afford the expensive medication that I need. Like, it was thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars out of pocket, like yearly. And so when I first got diagnosed, I was just like, I don't know how my freelance business is going to handle this because at the time it was, it was growing, but it was growing slowly. Um, and so I kind of, I had, I had a kind of a, a fork in the road where I could go and this was also during COVID. So I was put, being put on immunosuppressive drugs uh, that were very expensive in the middle of COVID while I was also on a road trip with a bunch of friends around the US <laughs> for like six months. And so I was like, all right, the timing of this is not great. And then also my autoimmune disease affects my my finger joints, so my typing fingers. And so um, it was painful to type assignments for my clients. I'm like, okay, all right, I have like a crossroads here where I can go and try to get a cushy job. I could try to just like wait out this condition, wait out the pandemic and just go do something safe. Or I can just go all in on freelancing because I have a feeling that the flexibility that freelancing has given me is going to help me heal better. It's going to help me if I can figure out how to get the cash flow where I need it to be. It's going to be the best decision for me. And it's something that I just love. And I, I want to figure out how to get over this condition and, and be able to do this thing that I love. And so yeah. in 2021, I just decided to go all in on freelancing and was able to scale by working less and earning more through raising rates and offering more compelling packages, being pickier with, with which clients that I was working with, and just being more strategic about how I was building my freelancing business rather than what I was doing before, which is just brute force, working as many hours as possible, getting burned out, and then not thinking strategically about, okay, how many hours do I actually have per week to work? What can I actually, what do I actually need to earn in a week? And then from there, how do I build packages that clients will find a lot of value in and be able to kind of hit those quotas better and then work a lot less. And that was kind of the, the huge change in my business and something that I try to help a lot of other freelancers with too, because so often when you're building your freelancing business, you're just grinding and just trying to get whatever clients come your way, try to work as many hours as possible. And that's kind of your only strategy. And then when you get to a point where suddenly you are totally booked and busy, you're writing for like 10, 20, 30, 40 hours straight in a week with no breaks, then you're kind of in, you're in a, a difficult spot. And that's where the strategy of freelancing comes in. And luckily I was able to kind of completely like find this momentum through this strategy that helped me get, get the space that I needed to heal and to reverse many aspects of my, my, my illness and also be able to cover all of my medical costs and more and, and not have to worry about that whatsoever. And so that was kind of like a huge triumph moment, but it was painful to get there because I had to kind of create this strategy in my business that I just didn't have before. Do you think it almost forced you, I, I mean, correct me if the time is wrong, but do you think this diagnosis forced you to come up with a better strategy? Like, are you the type of person, like I am, like I'm very guilty of this, is that I need pressure to work well. So I, in, in my life, I have to artificially create pressure for me to actually perform. And I find myself doing that all the time. It's a good habit of mine now is to like artificially create these like, pressure points for me to actually go and complete work do you think this is what 
pushed you along the line to make that strategy? Because it sounds like before you were in kind of like a lot of beginner freelancers, what they do is they make this common mistake of they want, they try and work as much as they can and they just work on the client's work all the time. So whether them, the clients pay them £1,000 a month or £100,000 a month, they just put so many hours into it. They think, you know, they want to earn more. So they're just working more and more and more on the client work, but they're work, they're not working on their own business and their own growth, which is where really the money comes from. And like you said, you want to be working as little as possible as earning as much as possible. So just to reframe the question again, do you think that that kind of almost kicked you in gear to make this strategy? Do you think you would have been just wandering along idly without such, or it might have taken you longer to, you know, create this strategy or like kicked into making this strategy? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it was both a blessing and a curse to be, to get this diagnosis because I ended up making, first of all, all of these amazing health changes. I quit drinking alcohol. I quit coffee for a long time and I had like a horrible caffeine addiction. I had to redo all of my health habits, all of my, I went vegan. I went, I just like, I created kind of like a new framework around health and fitness that has served me so much better than my past habits. And so that already kind of set me up in a good spot, but then having to exactly what you said, the pressure of having to redefine my business to not just work more and to work smarter, not only made me a better freelancer, but also improved the quality of work for my clients. Because previously when I was working just crazy hours and just trying to bank as many hours as possible as a freelancer, my my clients were getting a version of me that was burned out and tired and overstretched and just trying to get through the assignments. Whereas now I'm in a much better place where I get to travel the world and have a lot of inspiration from different people. I often travel to my clients and and work with them face to face. And so I'm able to kind of have this lifestyle where I'm very calm and, and working on my skills and working on my sources of inspiration and not overstretched, not burned out. And I only take on the clients that I really love to work with. So I'm not in a desperate place. And so all of those pieces make my work better as a freelancer and my clients see the, the value of the, what I'm bringing to them. And that also justifies the value of what I'm charging. So luckily it's this being forced into this kind of position of not being able to just scale up my working hours forever uh, allowed me to really be thoughtful about, okay, what are my clients? What do my clients really, really want from me? What will they see immense value from? And how can I kind of distill all of my energy into giving them that thing that is perfect for what they want and then spend the extra time outside of my client work, honing my skills, finding inspiration and creating different structures and and payment structures for, for my clients where they feel like that they're getting just phenomenal value for, for, for money that they're excited to spend because the finished product is beyond their wildest dreams. Yeah. I mean, that you, you've summed it up perfectly there is like what you want to try um, and achieve as a freelancer. And I like the point you make as well, like that you're traveling, like sometimes you even travel to meet the clients. That is, that is such a fantastic way to be able to travel low cost as well, because it means you can actually expense all of the travel expense, which is huge. Um, I, I remember for me, one of the first freelance gigs I ever did was actually out in um, Spain. I actually end up living there now but I was I'm from the UK originally and uh, some people just saw my services online and they asked if I would come out and you know I was young and you know a bit confused as to why they wanted me 
And uh, I asked them, I was like, okay, yeah, sure. But would you mind, you know, getting the flights and the hotels and stuff? And they were like, yeah, sure. It's just part of business. Like they paid for it for me. But even if they don't, you know, you've got that option to um, expense it under your business. So you can save a bit of money that way as well. And that's another fantastic opportunity of business that I even forgot about. Like I just take for like for granted that, you know, you get these clients all over the place. And that's what I do all the time. Just whack it on the Amex card. You get the points for it. You can expense it all. You go into these amazing places, but you're also uh, working there too. And then I like what you were getting at when you were um, talking then about, you know, when you were overworked, the clients were getting like a burnt out version of you. So probably the results, you weren't producing your best work, you weren't getting the best results for the client. But now you've managed to successfully transition yourself into, you know, working less hours more efficiently and more productively and charging more money. You're probably much more excited to actually work on the project. So, you, you know, you wake up, you're excited to work on the project. So therefore you put more effort into it and you're probably yielding much better results, right? So maybe, you know, you could have the same, let's just say hypothetical skill level, but if you're overworked and working 50 hours a week writing, whereas compared to a person, the same skill level that's working 15 to 20 and charging more money, you're probably going to get the better results out of the, uh, out of the, you know, the, the less worked person. Um, so is that, you know, is that how, well, I was going to ask, like, how do you even go about transitioning? First, a two part question, actually. One is, how would you recommend to freelancers a process to sort of identify that they are in a state of being overworked? Like, how do you know you're overworked and not charging enough? And then leading on to that, what do you do about it? How do you create a strategy to you know, end up where you are now. Definitely, and this is work that I do with a lot of different freelancers. So in my spare time, I offer mentorship to certain freelancers who are kind of at this fulcrum point in their career where they are they either are approaching being totally overworked and they they're they're seeing their income stagnate usually around $4,000 a month, but it can kind of depend where you are in your journey. And so I do some coaching and mentorship with freelancers and I'm working with someone right now who's dealing with this. Um, and so it's very, very timely. But I think for to answer the first part of your question, when it comes with identifying if you're not charging enough, if your clients aren't telling you that you're too expensive, you're not, you're, you're not charging enough. <laughs> I, I, every time I, I raise my rates on Upwork, I get a slew of people who are just like in my messages saying like, is your rate a typo? Like, I think it's a typo. Like, I think you should take a look at that. And it's not. And but like, that is a good sign, because it shows that I'm charging competitively in the market. If people are rushing to work with you and book time on your calendar, and so excited, and you tell them the rate your rate, and they don't blink, and they're just like, yep, let's go, then you're probably not charging enough. And I think that this is a hard pill for a lot of freelancers to swallow, because we are so terrified of raising our rates beyond the point where clients will pay for us. And in a certain kind of like first like chunk, like up until even $100 an hour, the, the clients that are booking time with you are not necessarily the clients that are going to be the most excited about your skills and what you bring to the table. They might not value your work. And you may be working with clients that are nickel and diming you that aren't actually understanding what they're they're paying for and, under, and appreciating the the effort that you're bringing to the table. And therefore, you might not be a great fit for for them anyways. 
the goal is to kind of get to that expert level pricing of an accountant or a lawyer because people should be coming to you as an expert specialist to solve a problem that only you can solve for them and your your rates should reflect that and they should be hyper competitive to the market that you're priced in and i think that upwork is a great way to kind of check your pricing against the market rate to see what other freelancers in your niche are charging I think it's, and we're not all, we're not competing against each other. Freelancers are not competing against each other. Every client is going to want to work with a different type of freelancer, but I think it's still important to understand what other freelancers in your niche are doing just to kind of understand, oh, wow, I'm way undercharging compared to every other luxury watch writer out there or every other, you know, landing page expert writer out there. And so being able to kind of have a lay of the land and understand what other freelancers are charging and how they're going about putting together package rates is, I think is really super important because it gives you an idea of what the clients are seeing on their end when they're shopping for freelancers. So I think that that's a good way to know. And when it comes to figuring out how you make that transition, there's so many different pieces to consider. Number one is definitely taking a look at your structure of your pricing when it comes to, do you have package rates for clients that just want everything done for them? They just wanna like click hire. They want you to do every piece of everything for them. Do you offer services that are kind of like skill stacking? Do you offer blog writing and like Pinterest management? If so, how do you combine those into a package where people can just be like, my whole blog will be done for me and here's all the value and all the results that I'll get. Perfect, let's go. Um, and so trying to kind of figure out how to combine skill stacking, how to kind of put together different pieces into a package or how to kind of create a new form of pricing in terms of like a services subscription or, or even just, you know, on a most basic way, just raising your hourly rate if you work hourly for most of your projects, because that's a, a super simple way to just be like, okay, this is how I'm making the transition. This is my hourly rate. I'll give people custom quotes based on what they come to me for and we'll just hit the ground running. And so I think that that initial kind of jump into a new pricing structure or raising your hourly rates can be terrifying. <laughs> it can be this feeling of like, oh no, nobody's going to pay this. And I remember when I first raised my rates to $350 an hour, I did that on Upwork where I'd been getting a ton of jobs. And then I got radio silence for like three months. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, I've finally done it. I finally priced myself out of the market. And then I got a first client at that rate. And then other people started seeing me get testimonials at that hourly rate. And then the floodgates opened. And the same thing happened at the beginning of this year when I raised my rates to $750 an hour. I was like, all right, I've done it. I haven't gotten any jobs at this rate. This is gonna, this is the end of my freelancing career. I've finally priced myself out of the market. I'm more expensive than most lawyers. I'm done. This is it. And then once again, same thing with clockwork. After a few months, I finally got the first job at that rate on Upwork. And then the job started following from there. So when you raise your rates, it is going to be like a moment of like, oh no, people think that I'm finally too expensive and that my value has not matched up with my rates. But if you're, if you're diligent about building skills, if you're diligent about understanding what your ideal client wants from you and delivering on that, then you will never be too expensive. If people want to work with you, you're not too expensive. Yeah, I mean, I, that is awesome that you've pushed up to $750 an hour. I, I think, honestly, you're the most expensive person we've ever had on uh, this podcast. That's incredible. And that's a testament as well to the, um, that there are these clients available on Upwork. A lot of people are hesitant to 
compete on freelance marketplaces or to try and get clients on freelance mar marketplaces because they believe that there aren't high paying clients on, on these platforms. A lot of people believe that it's sort of a last sort of resort is to get, you know, clients that are going to, you know, it's a race to the bottom. Some people call it. I know some big uh, influencers in the freelance space that call these platforms a race to the bottom. Um, but obviously you've completely denied that fact. Uh, were you ever feeling that though? Like when you first entered onto Upwork, did it feel like a race to the bottom? Did it feel like, you know, when you're searching for clients and, you know, you're searching for gigs and they're coming up is $8 an hour, $10 an hour. It just feels like there's never going to be, you know, a high paying client on there. Like, what did you feel like when you started and how did you actually start to find those clients that pay you big money on these platforms? Yeah, no, absolutely. When I started, the first job I took on Upwork was for $15, not $15 an hour, just $15. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that when you're getting started as a freelancer, it's it just, it's the same as in any industry and especially on these platforms that really prize job history. It's about just getting some people who work with you and have a good experience and will write you a nice review. And that is, that is the bar is just to like kind of get over that hurdle of just getting in the door, uh, doing those first early jobs, knowing that you're not going to get paid nearly enough. And, and that's kind of why I think it's helpful for some people to start freelancing on the side of a full-time job, which is what I did. And I think that that can be really helpful because it allows you to slowly start to build up that social proof that is so important on these freelance platforms. And then once you've kind of passed that like initial threshold of like, oh, okay, I've gotten some people who say that I'm a real human. I do good work. Amazing. With every single job on Upwork, every new job after like those initial set of reviews, I just raised my rates like $10 an hour. And I just kept doing that with every successful project. And that's kind of how I built up from there. But in the beginning, yeah, it did feel like an incredible race to the bottom. I was applying to a lot of jobs that were like $100 for like a thousand word blog post and things that I knew in my heart of hers, I'm like, this is not going to pay the bills, especially in uh, Los Angeles, where I lived at the time. I'm like, I can't afford living in this city on, you know, a hundred dollar blog posts. And so I knew I had to scale beyond it, but I think it's that early social proof you have to get. And when it comes to finding high paying uh, clients on freelance platforms, it's just a matter of making sure that your profile is incredibly findable for your ideal clients. So that means making sure that you have keywords in your profile because Upwork is just another search engine. It comes up on Google and for Google results. If you're searching for different types of freelancers to hire, uh, it, it will also, when clients are searching in the search bar on Upwork, they will show different profiles based on the different keywords you have in your profile. And I've spent many hours sitting there on Upwork, changing one keyword on my, my, my headline and seeing how my profile would either go up or down in the search rankings because of that. And so there's a lot of kind of small kind of tweaks you can make to optimize your profile on Upwork and even Contra and these other platforms too, to make sure that you're being shown to your ideal clients who want to hire you because a lot of the high paying clients on Upwork are not posting jobs or if they are, it's invite only, or they're searching for your profile first and then sending you an offer directly. And so 
it's not necessarily the, the best jobs on Upwork, at least for me now, are not the ones I'm applying for. It's the people who are finding me. So it's using Upwork more as like a client matching platform rather than something that you're going and chasing down jobs. Because when you become an expert freelancer, you have to get to this point where you're not chasing anymore. You're just attracting the jobs because you can't spend time just going out and you know submitting to a whole bunch. You need to be the the, the person and the, the magnet that is attracting jobs and clients towards you. You can do that through having a high ranking like profile on Upwork. You can do that from posting articles on your blog and, and ranking high on Google for the keywords that your ideal clients are searching for. Um, you can do that through a number of different ways, but the, the whole goal is to kind of flip the script so that you're not going out and chasing down jobs, they're chasing down you. Yeah, I think that puts you in a much better, um, like a negotiating point as well. Like if the, if the client has come to you, you're in a much better spot to negotiate a higher wage than if you're applying to a gig and there's, you know, a hundred other freelancers that have also um, applied from it. But yeah, that's that's a fantastic tip. Yeah, so um, people should really sort of take care of their search engine optimization on their freelance uh, on their freelance profiles on these uh, freelance marketplaces. Do you use? Uh, I heard you mention Contra there. That's quite a new one uh, in the space. Um, do you use it much? And do you use any other platforms other than um, Upwork? Uh, I mostly just use Upwork and Contra. I've made I think over ten thousand dollars on Contra. And I found a few good clients there, mostly for copywriting, not so much for the book world, which is kind of my main focus now. I do mostly book ghostwriting, developmental editing, and then I also help people publish their books and do kind of the full package from like their book cover and interior. And I'm finding most of that work is coming through Upwork and through my blog directly uh, rather than through Contra. But I do think that if you're a copywriter, if you're if you're kind of in one of the more popular categories on Contra, there are some good high quality high quality clients that are are finding new avenues to find freelancers. And so I think every freelancer should be on as many platforms as they can um, and just kind of see what happens because you never know where people are going to find you. I've had clients find me on social media, on from a blog post that I wrote, from a blog post I wrote on someone else's website, from random like different platforms, from a tweet. <laughs> so I think that there's a lot of different ways that clients can find you and your goal is to kind of be everywhere so that a mm. client can find you from one random YouTube video or TikTok video, then that can kind of, you know, add a lot of revenue to your your monthly in or your, your, your annual income just from having that one piece of content out there or that one profile up that somebody finds you on. And I think Contra is nice because it's so new. So if you are on the, if you're one of the first freelancers in your niche on the platform, you'll most likely win the jobs that aren't, you know, that, that are coming on that platform that they can't find anybody else other than you. So I think that there's a benefit to being an early adapter to these platforms. I was one of the first freelancers on Upwork and that helped me a ton because I was able to take advantage of a lot of different momentum back when they did in-person events, like I was at all of those. And so I think with Contra, they're doing the same thing where they're hosting in-person events, they're really investing in their freelancers. And so I think all freelancers should be on every platform, especially the new ones, because if you can kind of gain some traction with it, sometimes those platforms will also boost your profile in return. Yeah, well, that's some great advice. So yeah, I would recommend the same then. I'm not... I signed up for a Contra account when I saw it advertised like maybe a, a year ago, maybe a, even more now, um, just checked it out. But that was even before the platform had the marketplace. It was more like just a portfolio uh, website at the time. 
Um, but yeah, I've kind of neglected that area. Maybe that's something that I should dive in uh, and look at as well, because it sounds like there's some there's some great opportunities there. But yeah, with with most platforms, like being an early adopter really gives you um, an edge, um, and it get you know allows you to understand and sort of become an expert at the platform before most people have even uh, joined. So yeah, that's really cool. And um, you mentioned that you were going to Upwork like in-person events at the time. Um, I know they're not doing those anymore, but do you find yourself networking a lot? Do you, do you go, do you seek out business events and events on Meetup or are you more of just, you've you know heavily set up now on you know Upwork, you've, you've built sort of an attraction magnet where the clients are coming to you. So is that need for networking not so much there anymore? Yeah, I don't really need to do a lot of networking now, but in the past I went to, I used to go to conferences. I used to speak at conferences. I used to go to in-person events. So I think when you're kind of in like the middle stage of being a freelancer where you've got some experience under your belt, you know what your niche is, you know what you're best at. I think that that's the perfect time to go out in the world and go do conferences and go just kind of get your get your face out there. And not to say that like, I don't need to network now. Like I, I think that if there was like book events that I was around, I would definitely go and to meet more authors and writers. And so, but I, I think that the most important thing for freelancers now is to build communities and to build social media platforms and presences and whether that's starting a Substack, which I'm a huge fan of. I think everybody should start a Substack and be able to have this email newsletter publication go out to everybody who's interested in your work and have them pay to support you if they want or just you know, absorb the free versions of your work. Like, I think that that's the, the best time that especially freelance writers can spend is cultivating community, cultivating an online presence, cultivating uh, blog posts on your blog, which everybody likes to forget about like SEO and the importance of building your personal website. But that is pretty much like the biggest, the biggest, the biggest way that I find new clients in, in terms of like how new clients find me through the blog posts that I'm putting out. I put out like a blog post about how to write a book on Amazon KDP and immediately started ranking on the first page of Google for that. And so I think that people neglect that part of things too. So I think that the best way to get in front of your ideal clients is to be really targeted with where they hang out, where they're more, most likely to find you, where they're going to build trust with you before they hop on a discovery call. And often that is them searching on Google, doing their own research and stumbling upon you. And that's kind of the biggest way that a client would be feel like that they're empowered to find you rather than you going out and cold pitching them. And I think that in-person events can be good too. I've gotten a few clients from in-person conferences and things like that, where I just shamelessly went up to uh, a, um, this company that I wanted to write for. I was like, hey, I'm a huge fan of you guys. Please give me your e the email of the person I need to talk to, to, to write for you guys. And that worked. And I was able to write a really cool project for them. And so sometimes that definitely works, but the goal once again is to try to have as put out as little work as possible to get as much incoming work in return. And Google SEO, SEO of, of the of, of your profiles and optimizing your, your upward profile, like those are the things that are going to require the least amount of work from you that will get the most kind of interaction from potential clients who will find you. And as you increase your rates, you're gonna to, going to need to kind of have a bigger net of potential clients that find you because even fewer people will be able to afford you. So you're needing to kind of reach even even larger kind of room of people who are interested in working with you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think most people assume that it's impossible to get ranked on Google, so they don't even try. Like most freelancers I've spoke to about 
you know, the search engine optimization and creating content around themselves, they're sort of, you know, in the mindset of like, well, it's basically impossible. So why should I even try? Um, but obviously that is not the mindset and you've kind of proved that wrong literally just right there. Um, but I'm a big fan of it um, as well. Like you should definitely be pushing like yourself forward and your online presence as well as like in person, uh, in events and stuff like that. And, you know, especially if you are a writer or you are, you know, in the, in the content field, you should be doing it for yourself, not just for the clients, like build content for yourself, build, make the blog post, write about your life. And, and one of the things that caught my eye, uh, recently was your um, your YouTube where you got three YouTube videos out on the moment about the Substack journey and that blew my mind because like I've I've seen a lot of people recently it, it's maybe in the last two years or so everybody's got a link in their bio to subscribe to the newsletter and I was I was always confused as to like what's that about it must be just like you know a marketing tool you want to get them on a list to sell them something further down the line but then you know recently I, I've you know, done a bit of research into Substack and I've seen that it is this massive revenue potential that so many people are now taking advantage of. And it that it really does seem like it's working. I mean, if you head to your YouTube channel and just look at the free videos you've posted, I think in the last video you were up to like, you know, $1,500 or something um, in your, I don't know if that was monthly recurring revenue or total, but just from that consistent, I think it was 14 weeks of posting uh, on Substack, that just seems like an incredible achievement. And most people would be super happy with that, especially as like an early stage freelancer. I mean, that would be, if you are doing a side hustle, if you're in full-time employment and you're thinking about going freelance, this is definitely something that you could do on the side that doesn't require a vast amount of hours it just requires that weekly commitment and as long as you get the commitment right it seems that you can build a very successful um substack i've seen as well that you've got some massive goals uh, i think it was 8k a month you wanted to reach uh, on substack right uh, talk, talk me through that yeah, I think it was well, the first thing that I really drew me to Substack is a lot of my favorite authors are on Substack. So a lot of academics, a lot of journalists, uh, Stephen King, I think is on Substack. And so when I saw this platform really taking care of the authors and the difference between Substack and the other kind of platforms is that you own your email list. So at any point you can download all the emails of everybody who follows you and just peace out and be done with Substack. And that is something that's very difficult these days because you know, as creators, as writers, it's very, it's very difficult to know if you're, if you are building on rented land, that land can be taken away from you. People's accounts on YouTube can be banned at the drop of a hat. Um, I was doing some UGC content for a brand on Instagram and all of a sudden I lost my Instagram account and I couldn't get it back and I had to go through their Facebook person. Otherwise I wouldn't have an Instagram. And so to see the ability for these big platforms to just pull the, these platforms away from creators who depend on them for income is very scary. And so when Substack came around and was big about you, you as the email newsletter writer get to keep the emails of your audience, you have control. Like I thought that that was really, really cool. And so I set the goal of making 8K through this newsletter because why not? <laughs> I'm a writer. I make money for other people through through my work. And I was like, I, you know, I do my own writing and have my own projects on the side. I also publish my own books. There's a lot of other writing projects that I do for myself. 
Um, and I was like, why not try to figure out how to use, you know, all the writing that I've helped other, I've, I've lent it to my clients and, and help them with, why not use it for kind of like my own sustainable projects where I'm building something that will compound over time and have this like hockey stick of growth where it'll be slow in the beginning. It'll take a lot of time for people to understand what I'm writing about, what this publication is going to be about. And so when I started Diary of an Author this summer, I wasn't really sure if it was going to get a lot of traction. It's my newsletter publication where I'm writing about AI tools in the writing space, like the, you know, the, the encroachment of technology onto the field of writers, not as a bad thing, but also understanding how writers can get hip with the digital age and figure out how to coexist with these tools and, and also monetize their work in, in, a, play, in, a, in a world where best-selling authors may only make $20,000 for their for their best-selling book in the course of a few years. And so trying to figure out how to bring life back into the field of writing, and, and that includes freelance writing and being an author and being a, a book writer and a journalist, like what does it mean to actually make money through these fields in the digital age? And the publication has done so well. <laughs> I'm much, much better than I thought so far. I was just really impressed month over month to see pretty crazy growth because I've written newsletters in the past, but I've never gotten the kind of uh, interaction and, and kind of buy-in from my audience like I have with this. And so I, I knew that Substack was a special platform and I knew that there is a lot of high quality writing going on on the platform. And so I knew that the, dis the discoverability of my newsletter on Substack would be a huge part of what would help me find success. And so far the early days of discoverability is similar to TikTok or YouTube in terms of like strangers that I've never met, that have never even read my blog, never read my writing, are signing up for my newsletter because they're finding it through the Substack app. And so I think that this is another piece of like being an early adapter of platforms pays off. And I'm seeing that with Substack and that's when I'm like, everybody just needs to get on this platform <laughs> because it's not gonna be like this forever. It is a really healthy platform for writers to help you monetize your work and build an audience through just tr truly kind of sharing your stories and sharing your expertise. And so it's almost like blogging 2.0 back when everybody used to make a lot of money from their blogs. And now it's very competitive to, to rank on Google, but you can still do it. Um, Substack is kind of that new wild west of blogging and writing online and monetizing that through subscriptions, which is, I think something that is, is, hasn't, hasn't really been harnessed in this way before. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the subscription model they've got there is fantastic as well because, I mean, you can offer free uh, free articles as well as premium. And like you said there, that you're getting growth through the platform. If you were to just do, um, like if you were to write it on your own and host your own blog uh, and have your own newsletter, you would probably at the start have to pay or put a lot of work into getting that initial traffic. But getting the growth from the platform is just a win-win situation. So, yeah, and I mean, you people can check out your YouTube video and like see the growth firsthand. I mean, it almost it almost inspired me. Like now, I'm thinking, like, damn, should I start a Substack? Like, um, but what's what's that environment like? Is it just for authors, or is it for anybody who just really wants to write about their experience and expertise? Yeah, it's it's for anybody, and I think that the nice thing about Substack is that a lot of newsletters can jump to become million dollar businesses, like million dollar per year, like really insane numbers, not only from the strength of the writing, but from the strength of the information. And so there are sub stacks that are tracking 
trends in the startup space. There are some stacks that are just personal essays about the author's life that are, are doing bonkers numbers. And so I think that a lot of people are overlooking this idea of like newsletters, like a single newsletter as a business, because it feels too small. But when you think about how people used to subscribe to magazines and subscribe to like all of these other things that we don't really do a lot anymore, like we get a lot of free articles online. But the thing that is the gap in the marketplace for the reader side is I don't read a lot of things in the New York Times that feel like really personal, thoughtful essays about somebody's life on a weekly basis. And yeah. we all have this kind of like voyeuristic feeling of like, oh, I want to know what's going on in this person's life. How are they doing? Like, what what are they doing? What are they? What trouble are they getting into this week? What are they thinking about? What are they like? There is kind of that feeling of like getting to know an, a writer. And even on the journalistic side, um, the free press is a really popular Substack that is is pure journalism and multiple journalists. And so I think Substack is kind of providing this ability for journalists and writers to be able to host whatever they think is the most compelling content and offering that to a fee for their readers. And, and that allows a lot of different people, not just writers or professional writers, to bring ideas, to bring statistics that people think are interesting, to bring information to the space that people are willing to pay for because there's kind of this niche nicheification of the internet these days where you can find the most obscure YouTube channel on a topic. Like you can watch 40 minutes of somebody rolling a, a wine bottle downstairs and it breaking um, on YouTube. Like that's like, there's so many very niche things that you can experience online. And it makes sense that the, the nicheification of, of writing on Substack is also something that's kind of growing of people being able to like read about the most obscure Kind of topics on Substack, and also just follow people's lives, which we're as humans uh, always, always kind of invested in understanding how people just live their life on a daily basis, and what are they thinking about, and struggling with, and dealing with, and you know the human condition <laughs> uh, unraveling on a weekly basis is something that everybody is interested in. So everyone should start a Substack because everyone has a unique perspective or a niche kind of understanding of a topic that they can share and monetize that people would be interested in. It's just trying to find something that you're passionate enough to keep to, to a weekly schedule, because it's only after you've been publishing for like weeks and weeks and weeks on end, putting like an ungodly amount of work into it in the beginning. Because mm. when I started on the newsletter, my partner Kyle was like, how many hours did you just spend on that uh, deep dive into AI versus writers? Like how many? And I'm like, maybe four, but it's, it's irrelevant because if people really like this, then they'll pay for the subscription. <laughs> and so, and I was right. And I was like very, I felt very vindicated. Um, not that my partner didn't support me. He absolutely does. But uh, he was definitely poking fun at the sheer amount of time that I was spending in the beginning because I'm like, I need to gain the trust of my readers to know that, that this stuff is going to be good and they're going to be getting the good good from me. And they're going to be reading stuff that they're like, oh, wow, that's really, that's going to make me money. That's going to save me time. This is going to like bring me something that is that I can't get somewhere else. And to do that in the beginning, it takes time. And then after you kind of built that trust and then kind of got into the rhythm of your publication, it becomes, I can write newsletters in like less than an hour now versus spending four hours on a deep dive. But I'm sure I will do that for another topic soon. But I think being realistic about understanding that the beginning is going to be a bit of a slog to grow and to gain that trust with your readers. Yeah, I guess as well, you're juggling opportunity costs. So when, you know, you're spending four hours um, for that one newsletter, if you were working for a client at your rate, it's like $3,000 or something. So you've sacrificed $3,000 for this endeavor. Um, and I think it's really important of what you said is about finding something that you're actually passionate about and that you want to write about. Because I saw 
the same kind of thing, the same kind of hype around, um, and, and there still is around YouTube. People see like, oh, people are getting, you know, 50K a month ad revenue on YouTube channels that they don't even put that much effort into. They open up a YouTube page, a YouTube account, they make four videos, they don't get any views, and then they sort of, you know, they, they, they go off because they're in it for the money straight away. They're not in it for the passion or for the money, like, or they're not willing to invest in, you know, get the results long term. I feel like this is the same with Substack. I feel like there's probably a rush of people that will go to the platform. They'll write for five weeks, put loads of hours into, you know, only get a few followers, only get a few dollars through the door on the subscriptions and then just sack it. Um, but I think with most things, it is all about commitment. So it is finding that thing that, you know, you would be passionate um, about writing for. Like, I, like my mental thought process right now is, okay, do I have enough time in my schedule to take up a Substack page to start writing? So maybe I could write about, you know, my, you know, my day-to-day life in business, crazy investments, crazy travels, you know, the the big failures, the big successes, all this, there is probably a lot of stuff I could write about, but you know, am I going to be consistent enough? Do I enjoy writing, um, to actually, you know, continue this and and to make it worthwhile or otherwise that opportunity cost that I would have traded in those hours, you know, that'd be thousands of dollars worth of potential revenue for something that I do for five weeks and then give up. So it is a big discussion that I think myself and most people need to have with themselves and, you know, have the things that you do commit to it. So if you say, okay, I'm going to do a Substack, but then say, I'm going to commit to it once a week for an entire year, no matter how many followers I get, no matter how many things I get in the first week, so I'm going to do it for like an entire year. Is that sort of something that you would recommend to people um, having that sort of attitude when it comes to stuff or you more try and like, okay, test the water, fail fast, move on to the next thing. I think, I think that kind of depends on like what your, what the goal of somebody is in terms of their freelance career and then their like personal career side hustles, passion projects. Because I think that the mistake that I made early on as a freelancer was trying to diversify too quickly into too many things before my freelance business was truly like multiple six figures, because I think that in the beginning, when you're a freelancer and you're just trying to kind of like build like the momentum to give yourself the space to then have the time to kind of do things. So it kind of depends on where somebody is in their freelancing journey, because I think that if you're trying to start too many businesses in the beginning, everything will fail. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I love this book called Essentialism because it really kind of like slapped me around and be like, no, 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 you can't do everything. You can't, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. You have to pick the things that you really truly want to do and then do them one at a time. (laughs) You can maybe do like two things at a time, but that's only after like the one thing you've mastered. And so I think that with freelancing, I made that mistake early, really early on of just being too scattered and when I was starting as a freelancer, I might, I was so scattered in my focus that I wasn't able to build a high earning consistent income to then give myself the time to do all of these other passion projects and things. I had to hit that point where finally I started hitting the, the numbers that I needed to then like take a month off to hang out in Valencia and, and like write my novel. <laughs> like that, that like you kind of have to be able to give yourself that space. Um, And then when it comes to things like Substack, I I do think it is a, you have to commit to that like 
six months of consistency or a year of consistency, because I think any project, whether it's starting a YouTube channel or starting a Substack, if you really want it to grow into something, then you have to commit to the habit of doing it every day or every week, regardless. Um, and I, I think that there's some things that are an exception. Like I have a YouTube channel that I just put things up on. I started my TikTok a few years ago and, and grew it to 40,000 followers just because I wanted to post some videos teaching people how to freelance. And that was not something that I was like being serious about. Um, so I think that there's some things that you can treat as experiments as long as you're not expecting too much back from them. It's when you're you're starting to diversify being like, I'm reaching to the point in my freelancing journey where I really want to invest in my career as a writer and building my community as a writer. And so I'm going to commit to Substack because it, it dovetails into where I want to go, even though I'm taking money away from, from the time I could be spending on client projects or taking on more clients. I want to give this time to myself, but this is the, the promise I'm going to make to myself for this to pay off the way that I want it to be. So... I think that is kind of all in this idea of career design and lifestyle design with freelancing that I think a lot of people don't think about. When you get into freelancing, you just think about making money as a freelancer. You don't think about the, the also the exit strategy. And every freelancer should have an exit strategy because you don't want to be freelancing when you're 85 years old. <laughs> you yeah. want to be able to like have this idea of like, how is my career going to go? Like, how am I going to scale it? When am I going to stop doing this type of work? Like I recently kind of got out of copywriting and just focused on memoir ghostwriting because I love the work a lot more. And I was able to do that when I finally hit a point in my career where that made sense for me. But I think that as freelancers, we have to be thinking about that, that career design and that lifestyle design and how they work together. So we know when to maybe walk away from a huge project, to give that time back to ourselves to figure out what the next phase is. Yeah, I, I've heard a lot as well. Um, that when people get to or how people get to a certain level of success is that 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 stage that you've just described at the start where you know you're starting out freelancing you're just trying to get a couple of clients you're trying to get the momentum going but what takes you from sort of a good freelancer earning a good wage to um, a freelancer earning a lot of money is knowing when to say no is the ability to say no because Honestly, anybody listening to this, when you start to get momentum in your field, clients, they will come to you and everybody will ask you for certain things and people will ask you to deviate off the path. They'll entice you in with these new business ideas. Oh, we'd love for you to come and join this team. We'd love you to come and join this. Can you can you co-found this with us? Can you do this? Can you do that? And those first couple of offers you get in that seem big, like, okay, I'm, you know, they want me to be a co-founder on this project or they want me to do this. It's super exciting and so hard to say no. It's only through like experience of not saying no and then you realize that opportunity cost is such a massive thing. You need to really look at everything, every opportunity that's in front of you and really evaluate which one is going to get you the biggest result or not even the biggest, but the result that you want, the result that's on your path and in line with your goals it becomes yeah it becomes really difficult and i think that is such a huge part of sort of late stage like advanced level freelancing and just in business in general is that ability um to say no i love what you said about exit strategy as a freelancer i've 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 never heard that before um but that is such an excellent point um and even something that i'm going to need to like consider like myself uh, I think for me and a lot of people, it's just, you know, make so much money that I never have to work again. 
Whereas um, I, I think the way you've put it is like perfect. Um, you know, you should be planning towards that exit, you know, like as much as it's sad to say, we're not going to be young forever. There is going to be a point that we do want to retire, even though, you know, when you listen to people like, you know, Gary Vee, who's like, you know, I'm still going to be making deals when I'm 95 years old, like this, that, the other, you know, it is, I, I love the sort of the sentiment behind it, but are you really though? Are you really like 95 years old, you know, whatever? you are going to want to be chilling out most likely. And, and at least you want to have the option to be able to do that. So I think, yeah, that's a fantastic point that you made there, having like an exit strategy. What is your exit strategy, uh, if I may ask? Yeah, I think that I'll always probably do some form of freelancing around the book world, but I've definitely kind of walked away from copywriting. And then I think that moving kind of in the future, I'm going to be moving away from freelancing at some point and as my own career as an author and a writer kind of continues to grow because I've been really loving kind of the, 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 the content that I've been putting out there, the creation that I've been doing on Substack and being able to have basically my own like op-ed, like blank slate that I get to publish twice a week in terms of Sunday, my Sunday post to my free subscribers and my Wednesday deep dive for my paid subscribers. My, my work on Diary of an Author has been immensely fulfilling. And I also have a another Substack that I've been very slowly working on, which is a fiction novel that I'm releasing one chapter at a time. And I really, my heart like is very much in the world of like fiction and and books because I grew up working in my parents' vintage bookstore and I went to school for screenwriting. And so there's still a part of me that I'm just like can't wait to like really dive into my fiction projects that I've been getting like on and off attention that I'm excited to spend a little bit more concerted effort for the rest of this year and kind of going into next year. And so being able to give some of the time that I've earned back to myself in terms of these kind of passion projects, these things that are are very fun. I've also produced scripted podcasts in the past. So I've been doing that throughout my career, but it's something that I want to continue to keep up because I think that uh, fiction is something that should always be uh, done in, in, in a fun space, not in a, this is going to make me money and make me a famous author space, because then you kind of crush the, the delicacy of, of the, the, the heart of fiction writing, which should be writing for uh, an audience to give them a gift, not writing to become famous or make money. And so I think that that's why freelancing is such a good complement to the life of an artist and the life of a storyteller and a creative is because it allows you to, you know, you still use your writing skill to, you know, get paid and, and, and create value for other people and to travel the world and to have this really beautiful life. And then you can give your time back to yourself and be your own publisher, be your own, um, you know, uh, uh, patron of the arts for yourself. And I think that that's really amazing to be able to, to be a self-sustainable artist without having to wait for an advance for a publisher to write your book. And that's something that I'm, I'm excited to give to myself more um, over time and also to continue to teach other people how to freelance, to, how to teach other people how to build sustainable careers as authors, because throughout this whole journey, I've been blogging on my blog over the last like 10 years <laughs> and sharing my journey as a writer and a freelancer because I, I don't believe in gatekeeping. I believe in shamelessly giving away everything that I'm learning because I got to where I am from kind of watching other people build their own freelancing careers or build their own careers as content creators or writers. And so 
I, I, I feel a very strong sense of wanting to just give back and teach people. And, and that's why I wrote my book earlier this year, Six Figure Freelance Writer, which is basically everything that I know about freelancing, all of the things that I wish someone had told me before I walked into a sticky client situation or totally messed up a deliverable or went down the wrong path or was failing until I did this thing or, you know, the $4,000 kind of barrier that I hit and they couldn't get over for months at a time until I did a rebrand and like trying to kind of figure out like, what are all the things that I wish somebody had just sat me down and like, Amy, you need to do this thing. And I'm trying to kind of find different ways to teach people how to do that through my books, through my low cost courses, through my blog, which is free, like through as many different channels as possible to be able to help people. Because I think that like being able to give back in terms of education is something that I am I'm incredibly passionate about because it's helped me immensely. And there are so many really dark moments where I was like, I don't know how I'm possibly going to be able to like make money as a freelancer. Like I'm going to just like starve and like die in the streets of Los Angeles. And luckily I didn't, <laughs> but I, I know a lot of people who feel that like deep existential dread of like, I have to feed my family. I have to be able to like raise kids. Like, and I have nothing but freelancing and I care about this, but I don't know how to make it work. And, and I, I try to create content to help people who feel as lost and hopeless as I felt when I was making minimum wage in Los Angeles and trying to figure out how to get out of that cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that that's awesome. It sounds, you know, like people should head over and, and check out your stuff because it sounds like you've had a really interesting journey from, you know, when you started to where you are now. And I'm probably in the same position as you is that I got to where I am today from people like yourself sharing that information, being inspiration, like just somebody doing it to show you that it is possible. Um, because sometimes, you know, you can feel that like, it, you know, it is impossible. Um, and you need that motivation, you just need that sort of somebody there to, to, to show you the way. So that is that is really nice stuff um, that you're doing there. And uh, another point which I wanted to bring up in there, you said about, you know, working freelance to sort of support your dream of doing the fiction writing. And I guess this is working super well because some people, like you said, would just try and go and get a book deal or a publisher deal and put all efforts into doing that. But you're working freelance um, or have been working freelance as well. But one thing that's come to my mind is, isn't that just flexing your muscles as well? Like it's building that muscle memory. It's giving you more skills because you're freelancing in sort of the field that you want to do for yourself as well. So, you know, you've got 10 years of experience behind you now. So the books that you write in the future will probably be way better than what they would have been if you wrote them 10 years ago. So, I mean, I, I guess that's sort of the benefit of, of, of doing what you said there, right? Is that is that what you feel as well? Do you feel like you're gaining experience and being paid for it um, to be able to, you know, get the building blocks to do what you're truly passionate for? And then you won't have to, because I'm sure down the line, as you write and publish more books and when you get to, you know, complete the fiction book, of your dreams that, you know, this is the one, you won't necessarily care about the financial results from it because you've built this fantastic freelance career behind you where you're no longer dependent on your dream for money. You just want to be able to write a good piece of fiction. And as you said, give it as a gift to the audience, right? I mean, you're still going to accept payments for it, I assume, but 
like it's not going to be it's not about the money for you so um and to form that into a question uh, do you feel like this freelance career of yours is you know giving you the experience to do what you want long term and uh, to complete your exit strategy i guess yeah definitely when I was kind of coming up in, in Hollywood as a minimum wage assistant, because I, I started as a TV writer and I was just seeing how, how deeply depressing the Hollywood track was. And I was trying to study all of these careers as writers because I'd gone into film school thinking I wanted to be a TV writer. I had worked my way up, my lad up the ladder, finally had a chance to write an episode of TV and it was not what I expected. And I did not, it was, it was, very, it was a very nice gift uh, to be given to be able to do that. And it was a great show that I got to write for. Um, but when I saw Hollywood as a whole, I'm just like, yeah, this is not the, the way that this is operating is not the way that I want to kind of approach my career. I don't want to be, you know, working on Avengers 17. Um, I want to be able to be doing my own original work. Um, and so when I was kind of examining the careers of the writers closest to me, I was examining the careers of novelists that I really loved. I realized that most of the novelists that I loved had worked their way up as freelance journalists before they finally hit their debut novel and finally got to like really reach the point that they, they were meant to be at. And a lot of those writers, such as Gillian Flynn, credited their ability to like write that first novel and those early novels from their work as a journalist. And and to kind of understand that a lot of writers don't like hit their first novel fully formed. That is the thing that that like like forges them in fire. A lot of novelists like have to start either with short stories or or start with being a journalist or start with some other form of writing to be able to a make a living and b be able to meet people, especially and through journalism. Uh, is to be able to meet people and to like experience real people's stories. And that's why I picked memoir ghostwriting because it allows me to meet people that I wouldn't have met before. I've met people who have been just like, I remember for one of my early books, I showed up at my client's house for a family reunion where she then told her whole family that her father wasn't her biological father and then brought in her new family. And then I was there to interview everyone with the fallout and the betrayal and like, the, the 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 intrigue that was going on in that family that day and so being able to wild. be in these really really unique situations as a memoir ghostwriter where i'm getting to know everyone's deepest darkest secrets and then helping them decide what actually makes it to the page and that has been really wild and really amazing and cool and something that i've i take very seriously because it's someone's life story and mm -hmm. being able to help be that vehicle for people's life stories has also helped me become a better writer because i'm able to understand people more i'm able to understand what happens when people are under pressure in really challenging situations how do people deal with trauma and how does trauma ma manifest as different obstacles in their lives moving forward um, and so being able to work with people, interview them and interview their family members and to fly out and meet them is such a gift and such an honor and something that has helped me immensely in my fiction writing side. And, and it's something that is definitely going to kind of improve my writing down the line as a novelist, thanks to this work that I get to do with just people. And I think that that's the most important thing that if your goal is to be an artist, it shouldn't be just trying to find the most, the straightest line between now and being an artist. It's trying to figure out how to build a life that's sustainable, that will also help you hone your skills and feed that creative inspiration part of your life so that you can live a life worth writing about. Yeah. I mean, I know that you are amazing at what you do because the way you've just described that, 
it makes me feel damn that's an awesome job <laughs> that is that's how you can tell that somebody is really good um at, at, at what they do so yeah fantastic uh fantastic summary there and i'm gonna uh, we've been in here for over an hour i'm gonna ask you one last question before i uh, take any uh before i take any more of your time um but with everything we've talked about today in the advancements in technology um, and especially the field that you're in um do you feel threatened by ai or is it more do you see it more as an opportunity i think i don't feel threatened by ai i think it is a huge opportunity that everybody should be taking advantage of in different ways and i think that i, I think that ai is only a threat to people and to writers and to freelancers who don't want to change and I sympathize because my, I basically had a really thriving copywriting business that I completely pivoted and changed and focused just on memoirs. And I've been doing memoirs for the last 10 years. That's been my, my main focus in, in like creatively anyways, but I basically completely phased out most of my copywriting business because of AI. Because at the end of last year, um, I just took a look at like what ChatGPT was starting to do and even though it was nothing near the work the quality of the work that i was doing for clients i just kind of saw the writing on the wall that short form copy web copy it's going to be quickly eaten by ai that you can just like click it like click one button and then the web copy just keeps on cycling out you can do a b testing and so when i saw that technology i was like yeah this is not this is not going to this is not going to be something that's going to help me unless i wanted to skill stack and get more into marketing and get more into like um design and be able to use these ai tools to offer clients a range of services not just copywriting but because i was specialized in copywriting for tech <laughs> i was like oh no this is not this is not gonna this is not gonna go well and so i think that as freelancers, like we have to be flexible in our niches sometimes, understanding that technology is going to either make our job easier or sometimes obsolete. And while great writing, uh, as Paul Graham so 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 greatly said, great writing is great thinking. And you can't replace great thinking, but you can iterate on a thought through using ChatGPT to try to like get closer to what you want. And so I think that if you're a short form copywriter, then you may want to consider um, skill stacking, adding other skills, and really learning how to work with AI or getting more into long form copywriting because it's the long form writing that can't be fully reasoned through with AI because it's just, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's hallucinating reason. It's hallucinating logic and knowledge. So the long form writing is going to be the thing that we're definitely going to need writers for to be able to like make something that makes sense, <laughs> that is cohesive, that people want to read. But if you're a short form ad copywriter, uh, yes, I would definitely add another skill or refocus on something else. And that's not a bad thing. Like I think I've pivoted quite a bit in my freelancing career and gotten closer and closer to the thing that I love the most, which is memoir ghostwriting and having that high-end personal touch to the services that I, I bring. But I think that if you are working on something that feels like it can be replaced by AI, then you have to keep on looking for a different niche. And I think that that's one of the most challenging things about being a freelancer is picking a profitable niche that has a ton of value, that is creating a ton of pain for your ideal client if they can't solve it. And you being the solution, which means people will be willing to pay you you know, commensurate to their pain <laughs> to be able to solve the problem. And so it's just being thoughtful of the market dynamics 
that are, are beyond your control as a freelancer that will influence how you make those business strategy decisions of who you're serving, who is your ideal client, do they still really, really need you? If not, what other clients are out there that are within the realm of, of your interests and your expertise that you can pivot to? And I think that AI is something that I, I use quite a bit in my own business in terms of, I use this amazing tool called Wondercraft AI, which takes my voice and I can use text-to-speech my voice with their tool, which I basically am about to release an audiobook where I have not spoken into a microphone whatsoever. I just drop my book into their tool and it's reading it for me. And it sounds pretty damn good. I'm really excited for it to launch. And so I think AI tools are going to help with a lot of content creation and are going to help a lot of solopreneurs. But there is something that freelancers need to track and, and either incorporate into their process or understand what parts of their process might become less valuable and how they can diversify our skill stack to keep keep up with the times and also kind of continue to increase their value for their ideal clients yeah i think freelancers need to view it as an opportunity and i think the worst thing you can do is just ignore it like if you're you know you're, you feel threatened by it or you're, you're scared of it just ignoring it is probably going to lead to you getting replaced if you're in a field that can be replaced by ai and like you said, it is all about pivoting, identifying new opportunities. And we're in such a time period of like rapid advancement that there is always new opportunities there. And if you're sort of the first ones in there, you can really take advantage from that and charge higher money. Um, I mean, I'm sure even just off the top of my head, there's a lot of um, fields in copywriting within AI that people and companies uh, are looking for right now. So sort of like AI implementation specialists of copywriting on our website to, you know, help people split test um, copy on a website faster and stuff like that. Like there's, if you really sit down and think about how you can pivot, look around, search online, look at trends, like what are the new opportunities uh, in freelancing uh, with AI and just sort of, or even just without AI, but always just looking for the new opportunities within markets uh, and pivoting towards those um, is yeah is a fantastic piece of advice for um, aspiring and current uh, freelancers. Um, but I just I want to say a massive thank you, Amy, for coming on the podcast today, sharing your experiences, sharing your stories. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Uh, it's been great, and yeah, I can't thank you enough for like sharing uh, all of your knowledge with our listeners. Um, here and if if people want more from you where can they go uh, to check you out yeah well thank you for having me on the podcast it's been it's been really cool cool conversation um if people want more information about anything that i'm up to they can go to my website amysudo.com or they can find me on all of the social media platforms at suto science so my last name s-u-t-o science I'm a lover of puns. <laughs> and um, I also have my Substack diary of an author, which you can find on my website um, that has all of the, all of the, the, the most interesting trends and things that I'm thinking about in terms of how to monetize your work as a writer in the digital age. Awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I'll just say one last thanks for coming on. That's been really, uh, it's been really great to have you on and really great to speak to um, a fellow like-minded freelancer as well. I think we share quite a lot of interest in the, uh, in the world of you know travel uh, and freelancing and business and 
I can tell uh, that you're going to go on to do great things. And I look forward to one day getting my hands uh, on uh, the fiction novels that you release. So, yeah, please. I am following you on most social platforms, but please do let me know when that uh, when that comes out. And, um, yeah, hopefully one day we'll have you back on the podcast too. And uh, for everybody listening, thank you very much as well. And we'll catch you in the next episode of the 100K Freelancer Club podcast.